Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to this Commonwealth Club online program. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club. Uh, And the Commonwealth Club, as you know, has suspended all its in-person programming indefinitely, but we're hosting live-streamed events on an almost daily basis. You can learn about our upcoming online events or become a club member by visiting commonwealthclub.org. We're grateful for the generous support of our members and donors. Hope you will consider making a donation online, or you can text it to 415-329-4231. And I'm, by the way, coming to you from my living room in Santa Clara, California. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Hawes, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the newest in his long series of books. Uh, This one is called The World, A Brief Introduction. Dr. Haas is a veteran diplomat and prominent expert on American foreign policy. His ideas have helped to shape our country's foreign and defense policies through several presidential administrations. He has served as special assistant to President George H.W. Bush and was senior director for Near East and South Asian Affairs on the staff of the National Security Council. He was also the director of policy and planning for the U.S. Department of State and principal advisor to Secretary Colin Powell. He was confirmed by the U.S. Senate to hold ambassadorial rank and served as U.S. Coordinator for Policy toward the Future of Afghanistan and as the U.S. Special Envoy to the Northern Ireland Peace Process. Dr. Haas is the recipient of both the Presidential Citizens Medal and the U.S. State Department's Distinguished Service Award. A Rhodes Scholar, he holds a bachelor's degree from Oberlin College and master's and doctorate of philosophy degrees from Oxford University. He is the author of a number of books, again, of which The World, A Brief Introduction, is the latest. Please welcome me in joining Dr. Richard Hawes. Gloria, great to be with you. Uh, Unlike you, I don't raid a living room. I'm in the basement. I was going to ask you, uh, you're coming to us from your basement, and where are you, in New York? In New York State, yeah, out of the city, but in New York State. How has your family and the Council on Foreign Relations uh, come through the COVID pandemic? Uh, both extraordinarily well. For the family, we have grown-up children, so it's actually, like a lot of people I expect, it's been an, an unexpected uh, opportunity to spend time uh, as a family, long since one children have left home. Council, we're doing well. Uh, There's tremendous interest in what we're producing. We're actually producing more content than ever before, whether it's videos, conference calls. uh, The numbers are way, way up in terms of interest in what we're producing from Foreign Affairs, the website and the magazine, as well as the council website, CFR.org. I think people are hungry for straight analysis obviously concerned. They also have a a lot of discretionary time, needless to say, where we're spending less time commuting. So for all sorts of reasons, uh, demand for what we're producing is high. We've got now nearly 400 employees scattered around, and everybody's been working remote for 10, 11 weeks. And thank God, uh, people are mostly healthy and safe. That's terrific. It sounds very much like the Commonwealth Club, only on a larger scale. We're also enjoying a great viewership and participation and thinking about how we're going to continue that once we get back to in-person activities. I think that's a big issue for a lot of this country is we've been forced to adjust to this new reality. And at some point, I don't know when it will be, we will have the opportunity to pretty much go back to the way things were. And I think there's going to be some very interesting conversations about just because we can go back to the old ways, do we really want to? And have we stumbled across some new ways of whether it's disseminating information, interacting with people, using time more efficiently? I see where some of the companies out by you, Facebook and others, are now talking about making permanent uh, the idea of significant chunks of their employees working uh, from home. So I think for all of us, it's going to be, I mean, there's not, look, whenever you get lemons, you, you think about, is there lemonade? And I think there there may see may be some opportunity here amidst all the uh, risk and tragedy and cost. Well, well, we'll get back to this later on when we talk about global trends, of which global health is certainly one of them. But I'd like to start out by asking you to tell the story uh about how you decided to write essentially a primer on world affairs uh, and particularly the Stanford student and uh, what you learned about 
uh, students and their curriculum or lack thereof on foreign affairs? Yeah, I think uh, my chances of ever getting a faculty appointment at Stanford have gone from something modest to something less than modest. Nil may be the, the exact uh, amount. No, this was on a fishing trip about a decade ago. I met this young man who was about to enter his senior year of Stanford, very bright, very articulate, computer sciences major. And I was curious, since my knowledge of computers is pretty limited, so we, we, we exhausted that topic quickly. But then I started asking him, well, what else are you studying? Uh, for example, how much history are you taking? And he said, well, actually, I haven't taken any history. And I said, that's interesting. And we went through essentially the liberal arts curriculum, to make a long story short. And it turned out this young man was going to graduate from Stanford, uh, in many ways, I thought, unprepared to enter the world he was going to enter, to be an informed citizen in this uh, country. And just to be clear, it wasn't as if Stanford doesn't offer all these courses. Of course it does. Stanford is one of the great institutions, not just in this country, but in the world. But students are not required, for the most part, to take courses. They can navigate their way through and around various requirements and distribution considerations and the like. And when I got back to the council in New York, it turned out, and we did some uh, analysis, some research, the situation at Stanford was anything but an exception. At the high school level, virtually uh, only a handful of high schools in the country offer the basics of the world their young people are going to enter. Most colleges and universities, again, offered it, but very, very few required it as a, anything like a, a required part of a curriculum. So again, you could leave campuses everywhere and be essentially globally uh, illiterate. And then you think about it, uh, it, you know, when you and I came of age, we would watch the nightly news and there was quite a bit about the world. Well, now you're hard pressed to find anything. On the internet, there's uh, literally millions of sites that don't look at the world. And many of those who do, it's, it's completely unaccountable. The information presented is, is, is not accurate or, or representative. So what I decided to do, very different for me than all the other books I've written, which were, in a sense, more for people like you, for people who were inside the normal foreign policy conversation or debate, the government, the leading journalists, the Fortune 500, Congress, academics, and so forth. I decided to write a book for, quote unquote, the average citizen. Uh, so people could make more informed decisions as voters, hold elected officials to account, could make better decisions, say, about their career. Should I go into the foreign service, the military, what have you? Make better business decisions. Should I open up a plant in this country? If you're a worker and a politician says, I want to introduce a tariff on this good, is that how do you how do you respond to that? Is that something you should support or oppose? Should you travel somewhere on a uh, vacation? Should you invest in this or that foreign stock? So what I decided to do was write a book that would give people the, the foundation they needed to make sense of all that was coming at them and to help them navigate the, this global world that, like it or not, and for better and for worse, we all find ourselves living in. And it's a bestseller. So uh, I think there's a, some signs that, that there's a lot of demand for this. Um, on, on the other hand, I was wondering, um, a lot of younger people that I run into have some experiential uh, knowledge about foreign affairs. So they may be at a tech company working on a team that's based partly in India and partly in uh, Ukraine or somewhere else. Uh, they may travel, they may be involved in causes like dealing with climate change and so on. So what do you think is the difference between the sort of experiential one-off experiences that young people have with the global environment and understanding the greater trends and uh, the, the approaches that you talk about? It's a great question. I think, that look, I'm all in favor of experiential knowledge, uh, people traveling uh, and the rest having read this or met this person. On the, on the other hand, the danger of that is that it is fundamentally, almost definitionally unsystematic. It is not comprehensive. So it's a little bit like you know, touching one piece of the elephant, and you, you can be accurate in what you describe, but it, doesn't, it may be inaccurate in terms of the whole. So the danger of those kinds of experiences is they can tell you stuff, but what they leave out can, is an essential uh, context. And, that, and again, my goal was to fill that in, to give people the, the, the foundation to help provide perspective and a sense of uh, proportion 
to whatever more personal contact they may have had. Let me let me say one other thing. I hadn't thought about it until we had this conversation. Uh, there you are in California, and a lot of your firms are doing work with the government. And it came up at Google. It's come up uh, at Palantir uh, and others. And I think it's a really interesting question. A lot of these young people working at these firms, particularly in things like artificial intelligence and the rest, are working on projects that have involvement with the government, with national security, homeland security, what have you. And so, yes, these people have had a degree of contact experience, as you said. On the other hand, I worry that they really haven't had the benefit of a lot of study of history or of international relations or foreign policy or various regions of the world. So they are either making or being asked to make or pressured to make, in some cases, by their colleagues, judgments. Should they refuse to work on this project because it may have some implications for America's counterterrorism policy? And again, uh, I'm not challenging the legitimacy of whatever conclusions they reach. And the book I've written doesn't tell you what to think, but it does provide some background and some context to help people make those decisions. So I wouldn't worry about whether you'd be welcome teaching at Stanford. I think you'd be welcome teaching anywhere. But in particular, when something like this pandemic occurs, uh, in fact, computer sciences is the most popular uh, major on most campuses, but all of a sudden, pow, there's a, an example of how a pandemic has spread globally from Wuhan to Se- Seattle and around the globe. So all of a sudden, it brings home your point. You have to understand the trends. You have to understand the interrelatedness of all countries because it can lead to a situation like we're in. Hundred uh, yeah, percent. To me, if they're the principal takeaway of all this, is that nothing stays local for long. Even the word "local" is, in some ways, a misleading uh, word. In this case, something began in a city in China with what ten or twelve million people. Wuhan quickly spread around China and then spread around the world. On nine eleven, it was people who were training in remote parts of Afghanistan from various parts of the Middle East got on airplanes, and the rest, as they say, is uh, history. In climate change. It's the cumulative effect of all sorts of actions and decisions made by individuals, countries, companies all over the world. And its, it's, its impact is, is, is on the entire uh, world. And we could go on and on. And that, to me, is the lesson of this, that we live in a time where borders are not impermeable. Oceans aren't mo- moats. One of the words we hear so often bandied about is sovereignty. Uh, okay, but what this shows is you can embrace sovereignty as tight as you want, as tightly as you want, but no amount of American sovereignty protected the United States from this virus uh, and, and determined the trajectory of what has happened. So to me, the, the biggest single takeaway of this is globalization's a reality. There's choice in how we respond to it, but globalization is a reality that we, we can deny, but we can't avoid. So you 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 write and are thinking about regions, trends, global trends. Let's talk about a few of those. Let's talk first of all about um, some of the regions in the world and what's going on there. So let's talk first about Europe. Um, trends in Europe. What do you see as the major trends? Um, what about uh, trends towards unification? Uh, trends towards uh, dissolution, the Brexit uh, phenomenon. Uh, what do you see as the major trends in Europe? Uh, give me 20 seconds to take a step backwards. Europe was, when you think about it, the, the cockpit, the principal venue of 20th century history. You had two world wars that principally took place in Europe, mainly dealing with the question of German power. And then you had the Cold War. Again, this principal venue of, or front of the Cold War was in Europe. First half of the century was awful. The second half of the century, mercifully, the Cold War stayed cold. Uh, But what was interesting about Europe was after World War II, and the principal reason the Cold War stayed cold and the Europe didn't again become a venue of violence, was two great pieces of foreign policy innovation. One was NATO, the United States staying involved, not becoming isolationist, but staying involved in European security, even in, in peacetime keeping forces there, banding together in alliance. And then, and then the European project began as a coal and steel community of six countries, ultimately became the European community, now the European, European Union. And it's so knitted together, the economies of Europe, that war, the whole idea was to make war unthinkable among them, and it succeeded. So these two pieces of statecraft, NATO and what's now the EU, I think are 
you know, talk about Nobel prizes. That's the kind of thing I would be giving a Nobel prize to if I were if I were Norwegian. Uh, clearly, I'm uh, I'm not. Right now, what worries me is both of these great accomplishments are under real challenge. NATO, uh, the United States in particular, is uh, a lot of friction with our allies. I think uh, an obsession with how much people are spending, not enough focus on how they're spending it, not enough focus on the renewed threat from uh, from Russia, not enough uh, appreciation that European allies can be real partners, not just in Europe, but around the world, dealing with other challenges. And then the European project, uh, the increasingly it's lost momentum, it's lost steam. You had Brexit, as you mentioned, uh, Gloria. And I think a lot of countries are basically saying, we've got to dial things back. We've got to change the balance between what belongs to Brussels and what what belongs to national capitals. And what really triggered it was immigration from the Middle East. People essentially said, we can't have open borders. And if people come in from the Middle East through, through Greece or Italy, that they then get to go through to anywhere else in Europe, we can't uh, allow that. So I think both organizations need to really think hard about their futures. They're both going to have to adjust. We can talk about it in more detail, but I, I think it would be a real tragedy if either if either or institution lost it, it, its relevance and its prominence. So I, I think we would be far worse off uh, without them. Again, it's one of the reasons that history is so important. I worry that too many people take these things for granted or see only their flaws and don't understand uh, the weight of their contributions. Could you, I, out here in our area, I hear from, say, the South Korean government representatives about the, about burden sharing quite a bit, that they are quite upset with the U.S., uh, that the U.S. is trying to push more of the burden of military spending, security spending on them. I know this is true also within NATO. Can you talk a little bit about that, the U.S. pressure that's going on to take on more uh, burden sharing in other uh, countries with our allies? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's nothing new. When I first came to Washington in the 70s, there was a very powerful congressman, Mike Mansfield, I think from Montana, if I have my day, my country right, my state's right. And he was, uh, the Mansfield Amendment was basically to pressure uh, Europeans to spend more in defense. So the United States was going to yank its troops uh, back home. So this, this is longstanding. President Trump has resurrected this with, with, with great intensity. Uh, I think it's misplaced. Uh, Europeans spend about $300 billion a year on defense. Again, I would focus much more on how they spend it. We could get more defense for less money if it, if it was simply uh, integrated better and there was a greater degree of specialization. South Korea has done a lot to offset the costs of American uh, troops. If there's one country not to pick on on the basis of burden sharing, I would say it's it's uh, South Korea. And also, this administration doesn't seem to connect the dots. On one hand, it claims to be tough towards China. We can have a conversation about what that means. But how can you be tough towards China if you're beating up on your allies, including South Korea and Japan? They are your principal partners uh, in, in, in facing China. So I, I think it's uh, way exaggerated. And it's in some ways a, a misplaced emphasis. So if you were president, how would you approach uh, dealing with our allies, both in Asia and in Europe, in terms of strengthening the partnerships against common uh, challenges? Well, that, that's where I'd begin. I, would, I think allies are one of the great advantages of the United States. Think about it. We have allies. Last time I checked, the Soviet Union didn't have allies during the Cold War. They had countries under their foot who would have escaped at any opportunity. China doesn't have allies. Uh, the United States has allies. We have democratic market-oriented allies, dozens of them in Europe, important ones in Asia like Japan, Australia, South Korea, or what have you. Talk about force multipliers. Talk about partners dealing with regional challenges, global challenges. Uh, so I would, one, make allies once again one of the centerpieces of our foreign policy. Instead of picking fights with them, I would start having real conversation about, conversations about things we might do together. So instead of simply unilaterally saying we're going to stop funding the World Health Organization and threatening to leave, I would call a meeting of our principal allies around the world and say, hey, what can we agree on? What would be a smart set of reforms either for the WHO or for some new organization that we would uh, launch to deal with global health challenges? Cyberspace, it's a free-for-all. What kind of rules can we all agree to and, and promote? What about climate change? 
Paris Agreement simply isn't enough. What are we all prepared to do ourselves? And what are we prepared to do to incentivize others to essentially act uh, more responsibly? So that's where I would begin American foreign policy. How would I put it? Working with our allies as opposed to doing things to our allies. So I was looking back on um, the various studies that predicted a pandemic and made recommendations over the last few years about what to do. In September of last year, the World Health Organization released an extremely prescient study, which said that there was going to be a respiratory-based pandemic. It called on uh, greater expenditures for public health agencies within countries, the development of vaccines, and so on. So. It seems like, frankly, the World Health Organization should be complimented for being foresightful about this and not beat up to the extent uh, we are doing so right now. Well, to a point, I mean, you're right. They predicted this, and as did others from George W. Bush in 2005, an important speech, Bill Gates. I have a chapter on global health in the book, and I talk about pandemics. They were predicted, and they were predictable. Uh, and after things like SARS and MERS and all that, the idea that there would be a viral-based, a virus-based respiratory disease of a, a real contagion, yeah, that was that was there. And the World Health Organization was right. Where the World Health Organization has gotten it wrong, and partially it's not so much their fault as it reflects their limits. Uh, there's dozens and dozens of countries around the world who have not set up their equivalent of the Centers for Disease Control. So if something were to break out in those countries, it they would be overwhelmed very quickly, might not even know about it. China, that wasn't the problem. China has capabilities. The problem with China is they were not honest. They were, they were not transparent. And the World Health Organization essentially went along. They accepted everything they heard rather than getting independent verification. Now, again, in their defense, they are funded by the major powers. They are, they're staffed, is chosen by the major powers. So they feel essentially they've got to be, how would I put it? very careful, very circumscribed in how they act. And that showed, but one of the results is, is that the first, uh, valuable days, weeks, and ultimately months were lost as the Chinese did not meet their international obligations. And the World Health Organization essentially got compromised by the its unwillingness to challenge China and act with uh, sufficient independence. But you know, at some point, I would simply say, maybe getting ahead of ourselves, we have to stop blaming the World Health Organization. They're not responsible for our lack of protective equipment. They're not responsible for our own failure to develop serious national testing or enforce social distancing or encourage the use of a mask. And now, rather than just saying uh, we're going to take our money away and maybe leave, uh, I would have felt much better about the president's letter if he said, uh, here's, the, here's, here's the reforms we propose. And again, that he had done this with others. That would be a serious approach rather than simply uh, symbolically going after them. Is well, It's always dangerous to uh, ascribe motives, but essentially, I think, to deflect criticism from ourselves. So um, a lot of these issues come back to U.S. leadership, and that often comes back to presidential leadership. You've seen and studied uh, many American presidents as leaders. Could you talk a little bit about which presidents do you think were the best global leaders? Uh, compare and contrast? Well, I think if I look at the modern presidents, and I would say modern presidents begin with Harry Truman in the spring of 1945 after FDR died. Uh, in, in May of, I think, 45, you had the end of the war in Europe, August, you had the end of the war in uh, Asia. And I, if I had a, and then it goes all the way through Trump, so all these presidents, I would say Truman is probably, in foreign policy terms, the greatest of the post-World War II presidents. So much of the international system or order that we have uh, came about in Harry Truman's time. His uh, second secretary of state, Dean Acheson, wrote the immodest memoir, or at least immodestly titled memoir, present at the creation. But actually it was. It was a stunningly creative moment of uh, policy and institutions. And we still benefit from, uh, from many of them. And it got us through the Cold War uh, in extraordinary uh, fashion. So I'd say Truman. Uh, obviously, I did, I did not work for him uh, and was born in the final months of his presidency. Uh, but I thought he would, I think he gets the highest marks for the post-war presidents. Uh, others who I feel uh, strongly about one I did work for was uh, the 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush. 
uh, I think was uh, extraordinary in the, the peaceful end of the Cold War, the way it was handled, uh, the unification of Germany and, and NATO. I think all that was really delicate choreography. And it's funny, when, when good things happen, people tend to shrug them off and say, ah, that was inevitable. It didn't look so inevitable at the time, trust me. The way he handled the international community's reaction, and there's not often an international community, but in this case there was, to Saddam Hussein's Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, how he put together this extraordinary coalition uh, to liberate Kuwait. I thought that was uh, truly impressive. Under his leadership, you had the first ever face-to-face meetings between Israelis and Arabs uh, in Madrid uh, in October of 91, if my if my dates are right. Now, he didn't get it all right in the Balkans and all that. I think he was rightly criticized. But all things being equal, uh, I think uh, Bush gets very high marks. Others would give Ronald Reagan, for, for good reason in some cases, um, some uh, very high marks. But again, um, you know, if you're asking me my my favorites, I would probably I would probably go with those three: uh, Truman, and then uh, Bush, and then uh, Bush the father, and then Reagan in that order. So, um, with regard to Bush the father, he had significant experience himself previously uh, dealing with uh, international issues. Was that that level of understanding and experience part of why he was able to do well? I think so. I mean, he had served in China as the head of the uh, liaison office. He had been the head of the CIA. He had been around Washington his whole life. So he knew how government worked. And he was really comfortable in foreign policy, more so than he was, quite honestly, on on domestic issues. He also surrounded himself with an extraordinary team. Uh, Brent Scowcroft, who had already been national security advisor under Gerald Ford, uh, I think, uh, as people would say, was the, the gold standard of national security uh, advisors in running a really fair, rigorous process. Jim Baker, one of the great modern secretaries uh, of state, I think, by anybody's uh, estimation. Dick Cheney was a very effective secretary of defense. Colin Powell was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, you know, we can, pair, we can compare it to this or that Yankees team of various vintages, but that's a pretty impressive uh, foreign policy team. Bob Gates was... Uh, part of it. And it worked well. So the the parts were impressive and the whole was even greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that had a lot to do uh, with, with this president. I know you as a Republican, but I also know you've been somewhat critical of the current president. Um, can you talk about our particular approach to foreign policy today, this president's approach? Is there a particular ism? We've talked about isolationism. There are other things uh, you know, uh, approaches. How would you peg this president overall in foreign affairs? Like all presidents, he's a hybrid, but I would say a few things stand out. One is there is a tendency. It's, I think it's too much to call him an isolationist, but there is te- a tendency towards isolationism, uh, certainly a tendency towards unilateralism. So we've seen uh, the United States pull out of all sorts of international agreements. We've taken our troops out of uh, Syria for the most part. We're, we're threatening to take our troops or reported to be taking our troops out of Afghanistan. I just published a piece in the Washington Post calling it the withdrawal doctrine. But I do think that's a recurring fundamental theme of this president's uh, uh, foreign policy. I think also he's placed narrow economic interests at the heart of American foreign policy. That's different. Uh, I've seen presidents place, how would I call it, the realist school of presidents would place the foreign policies of others at the center. We would try to shape their behavior. Some have put a greater emphasis on what goes on inside, uh, democracy and human rights. Others would put a greater emphasis on alleviating humanitarian hardship around the uh, world. Trump, I think, is the first president to take a very narrow calculus of American corporate and economic interests and say, that's what we're going to do. And what that leads to is a very transactional foreign policy. You don't see ally, you don't cut allies any slack. You don't see them as partners. You see them as economic competitors in a rather zero-sum uh, approach. So I, I'm not sure there's a, yet a coherent Trump uh, doctrine. Uh, and I, but uh, but the, you know, even though I have used the phrase withdrawal doctrine, but I, I think there are certain tendencies. And I would say unilateralism, isolationism, and uh, again, a narrow emphasis on things economic. So apologies if I look down now and then I'm getting texted questions from our audience. And so let me pose one of those to you. You worked on the, you talked about the withdrawal doctrine. You've worked on the 
issues with Afghanistan in the past. One audience member wants to know, will the Taliban soon be ruling in Afghanistan and what are the consequences for the U.S.? Yeah, I've had some interesting experiences today on Twitter about that. Uh, in February, a quote-unquote peace agreement was signed between the United States and the Taliban. I think it's a wildly one-sided agreement in what the United States commits to and what the Taliban commits to. And to me, it, it's not a peace agreement. Let's just call a spade a spade. It's an American withdrawal agreement. And the problem is uh, if we have a withdrawal that is linked not to conditions on the ground, but to artificial timelines, which this is, we are not going to have peace. This will be a cover to get the United States out. Uh, no, I don't think peace in Afghanistan is possible. I also don't think a military victory over the Taliban is possible. So what I would favor is not American complete withdrawal, uh, but rather I mean, a small number of troops, I plus or minus 5,000 troops, and a large long-term uh, military aid and economic aid for the Afghan uh, government. Will this be enough for them to win the war? No. Could it be enough over time to persuade the, the Taliban that they've got to compromise, that they can't prevail? Maybe. Uh, that would be my, my hope. But, but even if not, it would be enough to ensure that Afghanistan would not again become a venue where terrorists uh, could operate uh, freely. So, I again, we went through a lot after 9-11. We removed the, the Taliban government. Uh, there, we can argue historically whether there were opportunities to accomplish more in Afghanistan uh, than we did at the time. I think later we made the mistake of getting ambitious in Afghanistan. Uh, and I, I would argue we tried to do too much too late there. We don't have a lot to show for it. But I think, how do I put this? The right response to the argument that the United States overreached in Afghanistan is not to underreach. And I fear that is... Uh, that is where we're heading. And people get angry at me. They say, well, you know, what you're, we've been there for 19 years and we could be there for another 10 years or 20 years with what you're recommending. And I go, well, maybe. Uh, but we've had troops in Europe for a lot longer or in Asia. And if we had a small number of troops, four or 5,000 troops that were there mainly to train and advise, and that was enough to make sure that Afghanistan did not again become a, a major terrorist venue, is that not a legitimate foreign policy accomplishment? Uh, does it solve the problem? No. Does it bring peace? Uh, no. But does it bring a preferable alternative to the Taliban, again, running the whole country? And does it bring this preferable alternative at a modest price? I would say potentially yes. So, you know, I'm not wildly popular for making this argument. Uh, but again, whenever people want to withdraw from something, I say, okay, we'll think it through. And whatever your near-term savings are, let's let's project the costs over time and ask yourself, what are going to be the, the results of what you are doing but also not doing? So, yeah, we can get out of Afghanistan uh, in a, you know, very quickly, but I worry about the consequences of doing that. So let's talk about some other uh, withdrawal doctrine areas. Uh, you referred to longstanding international agreements. Well, in the arms control field, we no, no longer have the Iran agreement. We no longer have the INF agreement. We've notified withdrawal from the Open Skies Agreement, and nobody knows what's going to happen with uh, New START, whether it will be renewed. And then the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference has been postponed. So how do you see this, uh, the global framework of these treaties? What importance did they have? What will be missing uh, if this framework dissolves? Look, this is your area of expertise, and you could probably answer this uh, better than I could. And your question in some ways suggests the answer. Uh, well, a little bit like healthcare, there's there's more repeal than there is replace. So I see what we're against with a lot of these uh Agreements, And again, I'm not persuaded that people thought through, okay, this is an imperfect agreement. I get that. Maybe even there was some noncompliance. Okay, are we better off, though, with nothing? And in lots of these areas, I'm not uh, persuaded. I think the biggest decision comes in February. The, who's ever elected? What do we do about the uh, expiration of New START? I would think the last thing we need in this world is a new round of uh, strategic nuclear competition the cost and the risk inherent uh, in that. So at a minimum, I would want to see that extended and to buy time for thinking about what we might want to uh, 
uh, do. Something like the non-proliferation treaty, that's, that's not an enforceable treaty. That's just a norm. The problem is the norm is violated. You now have four more countries than the original five with nuclear weapons. Iran is potentially uh, a fifth, though uh, I would be committed to that. They're never realizing uh, such a, a status. And I think there what we've got to do is have uh, tailored approaches to different challenges, which we have with North Korea or India, Pakistan, uh, Israel, uh, Iran, what, what, what have you. I think things like open skies and the rest are valuable because they reduce the chance for uncertainty and, and miscalculation. Look, I would just think, again, if we can stabilize the world, arms control, again, it doesn't, for the most part, uh, solve problems. It doesn't get rid of everything. It's why I've never taken seriously the denuclearization policy with North Korea. That's not what arms control does. Uh, arms control is not disarmament. What arms control is, is a way of adding some ceilings, some predictability, some transparency. It helps you manage through things. It avoids miscalculation. It avoids often arms racing because you're you're acting on the basis of uh, faulty information. So it helps keep a, a lid on things. And I would think given all else we have on our plate, Gloria, from the traditional problems to all these new global problems, I would think if we could simply put a ceiling on this dimension of international competition, that would be a pretty good afternoon's work. Give us a chance to focus on on other things. So uh, picking up on the North Korea question, we, I did a panel last week with Rose Gottemuller, uh, George Schultz, Bill Perry, Isamu uh, Nakamitsu, and some others on the state of arms control. Bill Perry said that uh, we really just have to realize at this point that North Korea is a nuclear nation and uh, take steps to try to reduce the danger and increase the security of the weapons there and so on. Do you share that view? I'm not willing to go that far because I think if we make it that explicit, it will gradually but inevitably increase pressures on others in the region to follow suit, particularly if there's any doubts about our willingness to provide a quote-unquote nuclear umbrella to them, to really be there uh, for them. And I think we would, by by explicitly accepting North Korea's status, particularly if it were not tied to something, I worry about the implications or the repercussions in places like Japan, South Korea, conceivably Vietnam one day. So, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. But I would try to negotiate it down. I would begin, you know, with some real arms control. So instead of simply calls for denuclearization, which are slogans, not foreign policy, I would have serious conversations about reducing North Korean uh, levels. I mean, right now, I don't know. The latest numbers. Sometimes I see 25, sometimes I see 40, whatever the number is, nuclear weapon. But imagine five or 10 more years of North Korea continuing to churn out nuclear weapons at the rate of five or 10 a year. Suddenly in five or six years, they then have 100 nuclear weapons. Plus, one assumes their missile capability would uh, become both, would gain greater distance and accuracy. Suddenly then in five or 10 years, North Korea poses an existential threat to the United States. I don't want to see that happening. So I would actually want to have real arms control negotiations where we would try to put limits on North Korea in exchange for a degree of of sanctions relief. I would not give up the goal of denuclearization. But in the meantime, I would accept the reality that it's not it's not something that's going to happen today or tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So uh, another question from the audience. How do you respond to the view that however serious the damage Trump has done to U.S. foreign policy interests, it can be undone by the next president? It's an interesting question. Uh, it's one that I ask myself a lot. I, uh, I hear it uh, talked about a lot. I don't think it's quite as simple as that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the world, if Mr. Trump is defeated this November, and Joe, Vice President Biden becomes President Biden in January, it's going to be one hell of an inbox. So talk about a daunting, difficult uh, inbox. That's one thing. Second of all, the world's moved on a little bit over the last four, four years. Countries have gotten stronger. Conditions have evolved. Uh, so there's no turning back the clock. History doesn't work that way. It's not like we can put the tape in reverse. I also think people see the United States somewhat differently. I would expect there's a lot of uh, national security advisors around the world who have this little file now called uh, Hedge Against American Unpredictability and Uncertainty File. Uh, They don't see us quite the uh, same way. Also, Donald Trump, yeah, he's 
quote unquote unique. And he's a driver of a good deal of what we now do in the world and how we're seen in the world. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. He's also a reflection. Uh, and whether it's his views of trade or some of his views, like on China, I mean, a lot of the people in the Democratic Party have extraordinarily harsh views of, of uh, China, have extraordinarily harsh views of, of trade, all of which is to say, I don't think American foreign policy flicks a switch if there's uh, an election and Joe Biden wins. Will there be significant differences? Absolutely. And I don't mean to minimize that uh, either. But you're also going to have to deal with one other thing, Gloria, which is the pandemic. I don't know what state the country is going to be in. We could still be very preoccupied with our challenges here at home. We've spent trillions of dollars. Uh, our debt has skyrocketed. So who's ever the next president is going to be dealing with uh, all sorts of pressing demands and constraints here at home. I, you know, let's put aside the question of what the congressional makeup is. It's going to have a very difficult world that sees the United States rather differently. So, yeah, there are some things we can do right away in terms of allies, in terms of reentering certain global uh, arrangements. But you're still going to have the problems of what to do about North Korea, what to do about Iran, what to do about climate change, what to do about trade, what to do about Russia and Ukraine, what to do about uh, Venezuela talk about a, a difficult array of issues. So it's not as though the spectrum of choice is going to be unlimited at that point. So I want to get back to some of the aftermath of the pandemic, but to be even handed here, we have a question uh, from an, the audience member that says, Robert Gates has said, Vice President Biden has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. Is Gates right? Bob Gates is one of my best friends, uh, but even even like even your best friends sometimes misspeak. I think that was uh, an inaccurate characterization. I've known Vice President Biden long before he was Vice President. I knew him when he was Senator Biden. I met him in the 1970s when I was a young staffer on on Capitol. You know, yes, he's been wrong, you know, quote unquote, wrong at times. He and I have reached different uh, conclusions about various wars with Iraq uh, and other things. But I think. Uh, in many cases, he's also been spot on. He's been very supportive of uh, alliances, very supportive of certain international institutions. So I think Bob was uh, misspoke. I would, uh, and I think it's uh, both ungenerous, but more important, I think it's it's inaccurate. And uh, I think today, I'd be surprised if he would repeat that today. My hunch is he would take that back. So let's get back to the pandemic and its aftermath. What will the U.S. and the world look like in the aftermath? Um, is this a good example of some international cooperation, as there has been exchange of data like the genetic code for the virus and so on? Is it an, ex an example of the way that pernicious trends can become globalized very quickly? Uh, what do you see coming out of the pandemic? It's a little bit hard to answer the question because I still don't know what how the, what the course of the pandemic is going to be. Will there be recurrence this fall? Will there be uh, powerful antivirals that will help us manage the challenge? At what point does a vaccine come along that is effective uh, and can be produced in sufficient doses, distributed, paid for to make a real... Uh, put another way, I don't know how long we're managing risk and living in a, a difficult environment. So I don't know when the past, the post-pandemic uh, day comes. My hunch is it's probably farther off than the many people uh, conjure in their in their thinking about the uh, future. Uh, all things being equal, though, I think the world of that comes down the road is going to look a lot, a lot like the world that existed before, just worse. And by that, I mean a lot of the trends are uh, deteriorating U.S.-Chinese relationship, the problems with the European project we talked about climate change, the nuclear ambitions of uh, North Korea and Iran, the hemorrhaging of people that is Venezuela, the fact that what, one out of every hundred people in the world now uh, is either dis internally displaced or, uh, or a refugee. Mr. Putin will likely still be parked in Ukraine and, and Georgia. The Middle East will still be the least stable, least structured region of the, of the world, and so on and so on and so on. So I I don't see the pandemic as a turning point, but what I see it as problematic is these problems will be out there. Some may have festered by the time we get around to you know, turn back to them. 
and our, our, our bandwidth, both our resources and our attention will be diminished. And that worries me. So this, this, if when I, you know, you know me for a long time and you know, uh, my default option can be somewhat pessimistic, but I worry about this combination of this, the old security agenda. We talked about nuclear competition, great power rivalry and so forth. The new security agenda, pandemics, climate change, how to deal with cyber, terrorism, proliferation, what have you, all at a time that the capacity of the United States and others, the, the principal upholders of order for the last 70, 75 years, our capacities are diminished and our attention is elsewhere. That's the combination that worries me. So just uh, to develop that a little further, <clears throat> how does the U.S. come out of this? Our economy, sort of the, the national psyche, uh, people staying at home, people having, you know, elder, elderly relatives pass away without being able to say goodbye, you know, all of the trauma of this. How, how do we come out of it? What will our strength be on the global uh, stage? It's a great question. It's one I'm thinking about hard in part, you know, family, obviously the organization I had more broadly about the country and the world. Uh, my guess is we could be living in an environment of what I would call managed risk or a hybrid environment where there's still a lot of working at home. There's some return to the office, uh, but it's not, we don't go back to the way we were. Uh, I think some people will basically say there, even to reduce the risk significantly is too much risk. Uh, it's not worth it. We've also learned new things. The it's going to be, look, you and I have spent a lot of our lives on airplanes. I doubt we're going to do as much of that in the uh, future. The idea that I'm going to fly to California for an hour or two meeting, no way. Uh, those days are over. We've all gotten more comfortable doing things like uh, this. I no longer have to ask my children for advice every time I want to do something like this. I, I've, I've improved. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, uh, I've uh, learned. But uh, I think there's a I guess I'd say a few more things. I worry about the economic aftershocks uh, of this, the, the the massive accumulation of debt, not just at the federal level, but personal level, cities, states, digging out of that. And we just, you know, the printing press is working overtime, but that's not ultimately a sustainable uh, strategy. I think one thing that will be different in this country is the relationship between the government and the economy and the government and the society will change. And I think you could have a larger government role in the economy. I think you could have a larger government role in the society. I think uh, some of the debates we were having six months or a year ago about universal basic income and a lot, well, in a funny sort of way, they've almost been decided in a de facto way. We don't use the same terminology, but the safety net has been ex extended and expanded in this uh, country. Well, we're now talking about supply chain diversification and beginning to mandate domestic production and stockpiling of, a, of certain items uh, that are economically uh, or medically significant. Well, again, that's, that's a lasting change. So I think the country comes out of this uh, differently. I think a lot of jobs aren't coming back, Gloria. One of the issues we focused on a lot at the Council on Foreign Relations is the future of work. And my sense is that's going to accelerate the introduction of work that displaces people, whether it's robotics or AI. And I think the pressures on us as a society to figure out lifelong training and education are, are going to grow uh, many times over. We're not anywhere close where we, uh, we uh, need to be. So again, I think it's going to be, you know, we like to think of switches. I think we're much more dealing with dials. It's gradual. It's also uneven. We're going to see different parts of the country, different industries and so forth react very, uh, very differently to this. And we're going to see also tremendous variation across countries uh, around the world. So I think it's I think it's going to be, I'm sorry to go on so long, but I think it's going to be a, a really challenging, difficult moment because we're, we're going to have a lot on our hands here at home. But again, coming back to you know, where we began, if not, if what begins in Wuhan doesn't stay in Wuhan, we're going to have a lot on our hands in the world, and I, I worry about how we're going to how we're going to manage that. So, looking around the world, do you see any country coming out of this in a comparatively stronger position than other countries who's dealt with it well, who's been smart about it, gotten back to work more quickly? Uh, done distancing and contact tracing effectively. Where do you see the success stories around the globe? There's some impressive success stories, uh, places like South Korea, Taiwan, 
uh, Japan relatively, Germany, obviously, uh, for another, Australia. Those are all success stories. Uh, I don't know the details, but Vietnam is reportedly something of a success story. My hunch is the means were probably, uh, shall we say, rather rough and, and if not brutal. Uh, one of the interesting things is that success and failure does not correlate the type of government. So we've seen authoritarian regimes like Russia and Iran do terribly. China's a special case. It's done some bad things and some good things. We've seen democracies like Germany or South Korea, Singapore do extraordinarily well. And then we have the disaster that's Brazil, the disaster that could be in Mexico. And the United States has not distinguished itself uh, at all, to say the, uh, the least, at any level, federal, state, or or local, all of which you know, use the word leadership. I think one of the lessons to take from this is the quality of the leadership is decisive uh, here. You know, a pandemic happens because something breaks out and spreads. How, how one responds to that, the, the degree of variation, the different approaches and the different degrees of uh, success, loss of life, economics, is, is stunning, is stunning to me. So... Turning to climate change, which in your book you talk about as sort of the defining global challenge of our era, uh, we've actually seen some positive uh, improvements uh, with the climate. We're out here in California. We're enjoying clearer air. We're enjoying, I know you're a fisherman, we're enjoying clearer waters. Um, how can, can we build on this? Uh, is there any way as we go back to work and full operation, can we preserve any of the positive uh, climate change developments? Just to correct one thing, I'm not a fisherman. Uh, I am a golfer. Uh, I wouldn't want anyone, I wouldn't want to mislead anybody here. Uh, you don't get seasick playing golf. Your book started with a fishing story, so... Exactly. But I think it was the last time I went fishing. So I don't want to misrepresent. Uh, uh, I, I also think that, yeah, the atmosphere in lots of countries has gotten clearer here. You see it in India. But recession is not a climate policy. Depression is not a climate. That, that will change as soon as people go back to work unless energy usage uh, changes fundamentally. And I don't see any signs that it will because all the pressure will be on getting people back to work. And I think that's uh, unfortunate. One, let me give an example. I would love to see a situation where the PPP, the loans that are being made to businesses, were to some extent conditioned on climate policy. So if we went to Detroit and say, okay, we're going to help you with your cars, but here's, the, here's what you have to reach in cafe standards, in mileage, you know, fuel efficiency standards, that would be a big deal. Or we would tell people, you've got to do fuel switching. You've been using coal. You've got to increase the amount of natural gas or oil or better yet, uh, or, you know, wind and, and, and solar or what have you. Um, so that to me would be a real opportunity. Internationally, uh, Paris, you know, to me, the question is not whether the United States goes back to Paris, though we should. It's what does Paris 2.0 look like? What, is, what, is, what do we do next? Because Paris is clearly inadequate in what it would, what it would achieve, even if countries... Uh, were to, to sign up and, and, and meet its goals, which, they, which they're not. So what do we do with, the, with those who refuse to? Uh, so, no, I'm not that optimistic about climate change. The other thing that makes climate change really hard to deal with, Gloria, is, you know, here, look, you think about it. The pandemic arrived in the United States early this year, and we are seized with it for good reason. I get it. And hopefully out of this will come some better hope, you know, health governance, but we'll see. I'm skeptical. Climate change is a slow motion crisis. It, it happens, if you will, every day. And what one of the problems of responding to slow motion crises is, is it, it tends not to have urgency. So I worry that it's too easy to say, yeah, I know it's important, but today I got to worry about this. You know, any, every business leader talks about the tension between the urgent and the important. Well, climate change, even though it's becoming more urgent, I don't want anybody to misunderstand tends to lose out because there always seems to be something else that's more important. Now it's going to be economic recovery. So rather than thinking about how we can use economic recovery and making it a twofer and getting something in the realm of climate, I'm worried that people are going to say, we don't have the luxury of worrying about climate. We'll turn to that after we're back. In the meantime, we got to get everybody back to, uh, uh, back to work. And again, now the day will come 
when climate change is not only important, but is so urgent that it affects our lives as fundamentally as the pandemic is today. And we've seen tastes of that with some of the fires in your state, as well as in Australia. We can imagine it with some of the storms, the flooding. So my fear is that by the time we acknowledge the urgency and the importance of climate change, any good option will have evaporated. And that's what we're urging. So you've identified a lot of challenges. And um, we're talking today with American citizens in various fields. And uh, what would you suggest individuals do uh, to inform themselves, get engaged, be have impact uh, on our leadership, on the global uh, environment that we operate in? Well, a couple of things. Uh, other than read my book, uh, the serious answer would be that it, I do think that people should get smarter about these issues. Uh, when you vote for president, you know, presidents have some influence clearly over domestic policy. They have far more influence over foreign policy. So you know, the fact that the Democrats went through all those debates and barely touched on foreign policy, that to me is crazy. I would want to know more about candidates in the, in the run up to this November. I would hope that issues of foreign policy get raised and the candidates are asked all sorts of questions. So we know what we're getting. I mean, uh, the stakes are enormous. The discretion and latitude for the president are, are enormous. So one thing I would say is get up to speed so you can be a more informed uh, voter. That would That's something everybody can do. Another thing I would say, particularly to parents, is whether it's in public schools or private schools at the high school or university, college, university level, you have some influence over the curriculum. If I were a parent, and I am a parent, uh, but if I were thinking about it now, my, both of my kids grew up very interested, shockingly enough, in international issues. You know, dinner table conversation turns out to be uh, a big influence. But I, uh, parents are paying out enormous sums of money, either directly to schools or as taxpayers. Why not insist that, that curriculums include certain things, for example, about the world or about American civics? Uh, why don't we have a real public debate in this country? could be at the national level, could be at the state level, could be at the local level about what we want or the individual school level. If you're an alumnus, if you're simply paying the freight for your child to go to, to, go to Stanford or any other school, why not challenge the administration, the faculty, and others to saying, hey, if I'm spending all this money for a Stanford degree, I don't mean to pick on Stanford, it could be any other school in the country, why, don't, uh, why doesn't Johnny or Mary, why aren't they required to take this? Why don't, you know, as an employer, I would say, hey, I'm going to, if enough employers stood up and said, we are going to give preference to students graduating who had these sets of skills, trust me, universities and, you know, would very quickly uh, uh, react uh, to that. So I think there are things individuals do. They can get involved in various groups, non-governmental organizations, group like Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières the International Rescue Committee. They have extraordinary influence on in what goes on uh, around the world. The, people can make career choices. Go work for the, the, the Peace Corps. Go work for the, the you know, go into the military, the intelligence community, the foreign service, uh, what have you. So I, I think there's so many ways individuals can make a difference with their uh, lives. Labor unions can advise their members about how to think about various international issues. CEOs can talk to their uh, people ab- about these issues. But I think a lot begins with becoming a more informed citizen and also uh, becoming, as in the education realm, a more more informed consumer about the content of education. So I'm sure you've already thought of this, but it would be great to have a list of 10 questions from the Council on Foreign Relations to ask candidates for Congress or any office, uh, national office, in the uh, current uh, national political campaign? Well, funny you should mention it. Uh, On our website, CFR.org, we have something called election or E2020. And we asked all the Democratic candidates and the Republican candidates. I I can't remember if it was 10 or 12 questions about foreign policy. It's all posted. And we will get back to it in the fall. Now that we have, we know who's running. We will, uh, we did all sorts of events around the country where we had foreign policy forums. And we're going to recreate that. This fall, what we're going to try to do is get the candidates to answer questions and get discuss the issues in front of voters 
uh, particularly in critical states. What we will try to do is raise the salience of international and foreign policy questions and raise the understanding of these issues on the part of the uh, voters. So that, you know, it's something we're going to try to do to, uh, to bring about a, a more informed uh, citizenry. And just to be clear, we're not going to tell people how to vote or what to think about the issues. What I want to do is give people the background and the knowledge so then they can reach their own conclusions. So I don't think you know this, Richard, but one of my first little jobs was for the Council on Foreign Relations while I was in grad school in New York. And I was a rapporteur for a study group. Uh, I was 20 or 21, and uh, it was 75 or 76. So the council used to bring in, you know, a lot of grad students, young people to do little jobs and uh, rub shoulders with practitioners in foreign policy and so on. Don't know if you still do that. We do more of it than ever. I actually feel, you know, people think of us as a think tank. And yes, we turn out books and articles and we publish foreign affairs magazine. You know, we traffic in ideas. I get that. I think almost as important is what we do to develop talent. We have over 100 interns uh, a year working at the council in New York and Washington now uh, remotely. Uh, just this summer alone, just to give you an idea, we had over 20,000 applications for uh, something like 40, 45 internships. So it's extraordinary. We have one fifth of our members. We have about a thousand members, Gloria, who are under uh, under 40 in our term member program. We have all sorts of uh, one year fellowships uh, for various types of uh you know, recently minted PhDs for mid-level military officers, intelligence officers and the like. We probably had 150, 200 military fellows over the year. More than half have gone on to make general or, or admiral. Uh, someone like Condi Rice, uh, her first taste of the foreign policy business is she became an international affairs fellow. And we took young academics. And in her case, she went to work for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, all sorts of other people. Samantha Power, she got one of these and she worked from some obscure Illinois senator named Barack Obama. Uh, so... I actually think one of the most important things we do is not just, again, develop and disseminate ideas, but it's to, it's to help nurture talent. We need, a, we need, again, informed citizens, but we also need a cadre of people who are willing. You know, this isn't investment banking. This isn't private equity. But we need the best and the brightest to go into these fields, whether in government or you know, on the outside. Uh, you know, what we do in the world, how we do it is, is still so critical to the world and to ourselves that, you know, you and I made the career choice to go in these directions. I worry that the best and the brightest now, not that I'm saying I am uh, or I was, but I, I want really talented young people to be attracted to this, given how interesting it is and how important it is. Again, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I, you know, if I can hook some younger people and get them to, to go in similar directions as you and I, then I feel uh, I may have accomplished something. So in a way, we've come full circle here to the reason you wrote your book and to uh, questions about what young people can do to inform themselves, educate themselves, and become active. Let me just mention that one question I didn't ask you, and we're out of time, so we can't uh, really address it, is uh, one young person wanted to know uh, that, the gutting of some American foreign policy institutions raises questions to them about choosing a career in this field. Fair enough. And the repair of those institutions has got to be a priority. Diplomacy is a critical tool of national security. Diplomacy in part requires diplomats. Again, uh, I would hope the next secretary of state, whoever he or she may be, would make that a priority. Well, thank you, Richard. It's, I'd love to go on for a while, and uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for all your work and your service, both in government and outside of government. You, no, no institution is like the Council on Foreign Relations in terms of the richness and the, uh, the extent, extent of its work on educating Americans and people around the world about foreign policy and, and foreign affairs. So thank you for all that you do. Uh, well, thank you, Gloria. It's been, again, it's great to be back with you. Great to do something with the Commonwealth Club because you do similar things there. So thank you for that.
Thank you. And um, compliments again on uh, publishing your book, The World, A Brief Introduction. Again, we're thanking Dr. Richard Haas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations. We encourage you, uh, we can't um, give you a copy or sell you a copy of his book in this manner, but we can encourage you to pick up your copy today through your local independent bookstore. We also want to express our appreciation to all of our viewers joining us online. Again, the club has a wide range of programs coming up. Please visit our website for more information. I'm Gloria Duffy, This is, and this live stream program of the Commonwealth Club is now adjourned. Thank you, and again, Richard, thank you. Thank you, Gloria. Take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.